Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. Today I want to continue to talk about the various exercises of the Satipatthana Sutta in turn, turning in particular to the nine exercises that concern observing corpses in the various stages of decay. A lot of people don't like these exercises. The corpses we are used to are observed at a funeral parlor, embalmed or made to look better than they looked in real life, then buried or cremated out of sight of grieving relatives. We live in a culture that is almost unique in its degree of denial about death. But that is part of our problem, why we don't see things as they are. Here in the sutta, they are dumped into a charnel ground and subject to all the forces and creatures of nature, bloated, chewed on, teeming with maggots, rotting, and eventually turning to dust. This exercise is profound. It takes our contemplation of non-self and impermanence past the point of death, where the bottom falls out of the internal evidence. Let me read the description of the corpse exercises. Again, because as though he were to see a corpse thrown aside in the charnel ground, one, two, or three days dead, bloated, livid, and oozing matter, a bhikkhu compares the same body with the thus. This body, too, is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. Each of these exercises contains the phrase, as though he were to see, which indicates it's intended as a visualization. You don't actually need to visit a charnel ground. Good luck finding one, though this is probably helpful. Graphic videos and images online serve also as a substitute. Cited was the first exercise, and it's followed by the standard body refrain. In this way, he abides contemplating body in the body internally, or he abides contemplating body in the body externally, or he abides contemplating body in the body both internally and externally. He abides contemplating in body the nature of arising, or he abides contemplating in body the nature of vanishing, or he abides contemplating in body the nature of both arising and vanishing. Recollecting that the body exists is simply established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and proficiency. He abides independent. He doesn't cling to anything in the world. That is how a bhikkhu abides contemplating body in the body. Then the second exercise follows. Again, as though he were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, 
being devoured by crows, hawks, vultures, dogs, jackals, or various kinds of worms, Abiku compares the same body with the thus. This body, too, is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. This is followed once again by the same refrain. In this way, he abides contemplating body in the body internally, dot, dot, dot. That is how Abiku abides contemplating body in the body. We continue, again, as though he were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, a skeleton with flesh and blood held together with sinews. Abiku compares the same body with the thus. This body, too, is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. Then the same refrain, and we continue. Again, as though he were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, a fleshless skeleton smeared with blood, held together with sinews, Abiku compares this same body with the thus. This body, too, is of the same nature. It'll be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. Then again the refrain, and we continue. Again, as though... He were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, a skeleton without flesh and blood, held together with sinews. Abiku compares this same body with it thus. This body, too, is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. Again, the refrain, and we continue. Again, as though... He were to see a corpse thrown aside in the charnel ground, disconnected bones scattered in all directions, here a hand bone, there a foot bone, here a shin bone, there a thigh bone, here a hip bone, there a back bone, here a rib bone, there a breast bone, here an arm bone, there a shoulder bone, here a neck bone, there a jaw bone, here a tooth, here the skull. Abiku compares the same body with it thus. This body, too, is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. Then the profane, and we continue again, as though he were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, bones bleached white, the color of shells. Abiku compares this same body with it thus. This body, too, is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is exempt from that fate. Then the refrain. Again, as though he were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, bones heaped up more than a year old. The bhikkhu compares this same body with it thus. This body, too, is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. And the refrain, and finally, again, as though he were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, rotted and crumbled to dust, a bhikkhu compares the same body with the dust. This body, too, is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. And finally, the refrain for the ninth time. The first thing that stands out about these exercises is that there are fully nine of them. There are only five bodily exercises otherwise in the sutta, 
I don't think this is because the Buddha expects us to devote proportionally much time to the corpse exercises. Rather, I think each is intended to be a complete contemplation by itself based on its own separate basis of observables. What is it that's decaying here? One by one, each basis of observables falls away. The first to fall away are the more lively breath and bodily actions. The corpse has no breath. The corpse does not move, at least not on its own volition. In fact, most of these corpse exercises involve observing something quite still. The body parts also fall away, either through decay from within, becoming a uniform slime, or as they are consumed by animals, at first leaving skin and bones, and even these decay and disappear. Well into the corpse exercises, even the last remnants of bodily posture disappears. With respect to internal analysis in the refrain, we mostly see body in its nature of vanishing at each step, comparing it with the presently living body that is subject to that fate eventually. It is worth noting that life itself, in the general sense, continues to arise as much as vanish, but in different forms. Jackals, vultures, maggots, bacteria, the birds that feed off the maggots, and so on, feast and thrive. Eventually, mushrooms and even trees can take root in the soil that was once the corpse. This is how nature works. Where these exercises produce the most remarkable results have to do with external analysis. Where is the body self at each stage? The one that the worldling is convinced he sees in the evidence for the self, in the breath, in the posture, and so on, but is actually sustained by the narratives in which the self plays a starring role. As the direct internal evidence for the body-self disappears, are the narratives sustainable? It's possible that the corpse of a loved one you might observe at the funeral parlor is likely still to be regarded as a body self, not your own body self, but as Uncle Fred, just as a lifeless state. He is still the object of narratives. Who would have expected he would end like this? He's playing his last poker hand. He's gone to a better place. He's having the last laugh with the last-minute changes in his will. But the skeletal stage... But in the skeletal stage, narratives are impossible, or at least comical, to maintain. We no longer see anyone there. Remember in Dances with Wolves, when they come across the skeleton on the prairie with an arrow through it, and the one guy says, his relatives back east keep wondering... Why doesn't he ever write? There's something absurd about this. Who's the he? We seem incapable of conjuring up the presumption of a substantial and fixed body self, in this case, that enters into such human relations. He's too far gone. 
Remember that in these exercises, we are still in the present acknowledging our future fate. So our presumption of our body self is fully intact, depending on how far we've progressed in this practice. But with a looming, dropping off a cliff, and we panic. Why do we panic? More generally, why do we fear death? We presume an external body self. That body self sustains external narratives. And those narratives make us even more convinced that that body self is real. They also result in our appropriating and clinging tightly to the body self as something we do not want to lose. Endowed with meaning at the emotional level, it seems even more real. It is this presumed self that dies. All the rest is just nature doing what nature always does, forever changing and morphing into new forms. When we see the inevitability of the loss of the self we presume, we panic. One response to the panic is to fashion another narrative, one of eternal life, perhaps in a different realm from the one in which the corpse will decay. What the hell, it's all narratives anyway, but we are mostly not convinced. The way this plays out is ironic in that the fear of death is largely responsible for sustaining the presumption of body-self and therefore sustaining the presumption that there is such thing as death in the first place. If we overcome the presumption of a self, as most of the Satipatthana exercises are designed specifically to do, there is nothing to die. There is life and death in nature, but this has to do with the relentless flux inherent in the profound contingency of all things responsible for constant momentary arising and vanishing. Contemplating corpses encourages the insight that no matter what presumptions we throw up and no matter how much we insist that this is the way it should be, nature cuts through them all as if they're not there, because they're not really there. I have a personal story about my experience with this practice at a time where I knew nothing about this practice that listeners might find helpful. Over 20 years ago, I was a devout practitioner at the Austin Zen Center, but not yet ordained. I had several visits with a 45-year-old woman named Robin, who is dying of lung cancer. She had had a limited degree of experience in Buddhism, and a friend thought she would find comfort in a visit from a real Buddhist, and so phoned the Zen Center. As a result, I showed up. I met with her daily, but for only two weeks before she actually passed away. Before Robin died, she asked me if I would arrange for her to have a Buddhist funeral. I couldn't very well refuse, but had no notion of what that might entail. I began doing research, asking the questions, and learned that the Zen tradition was to disturb the body as little as possible, not to embalm, and to allow the body to lie in state for three days before cremation. 
Robin was glad to see this being taken care of before she passed away. I contacted a cheap funeral parlor and instructed them not to disturb the body, which is legal in Texas. The Austin Shambhala Center was kind enough to make a small shrine room available in which Robin could lie in state. I found myself in the role of undertaker, learning that some family members wanted to see the body, others not, and opening or closing the casket accordingly. Luckily, the Shambhala tradition had its own funeral practices, but remarkably similar to the Zen tradition, including leaving the body undisturbed for three days. Both even scheduled a follow-up memorial service after 49 days. However, Shambhala had an additional practice that they called practicing with the body, which probably has its origin in the early Satipatthana. While the body lay in state, someone should be with the body continuously in meditation. The Tibetan belief is that Robin's consciousness might hover around the corpse in a state of confusion for up to three days, and that a meditator would have a calming influence that would encourage a felicitous rebirth. The members of the Shambhala Center had already drawn up a time schedule, and time shifts were already being filled. I wrote my name in for a graveyard shift from 11 p.m. to 4 a.m. one night. Spending so much time with Robin's corpse was an opportunity for me to connect with the nature of death. Both daily over the three days, I spent opening and closing the casket, during which time I observed the gradual withering of the body. She lay over a block of dry ice to slow the process of decay. She had died with her eyes open, which now stared fixedly upward at first, but progressively lost their luster. I spent the night meditating alone with the corpse, every once in a while getting up to drink a cup of tea. I gained an insight of how completely natural death is, which has stuck with me ever since. What a wonderfully powerful practice, whether Robin's consciousness might have been hovering around or not. I had also observed something else quite remarkable, but before Robin died. When I first visited her, she was clearly terrified. She was also in denial. She was in touch with an herbalist who was telling her she would be cured. I don't remember what words of wisdom I had, certainly something about impermanence. But suddenly, overnight, from one visit to the next, her whole attitude changed. She was happy and even had a sense of humor. It was quite remarkable. She had let go, abandoned the self and its narratives. The only thing that can die, as this is commonly understood, is the self, which is a presumption. Abandon the presumption, and there is nothing that can die. This is called attaining the deathless in Buddhism, sometimes equated with awakening. Robin may at least have gotten a glimpse of the deathless at the critical time she needed it.
learn more about the Rethinking the Satipatthana Project, please go to sirigu.org slash chintita. That is S-I-T-A-G-U dot org C-I-N-T-I-T-A.